0: Alright, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter number 1 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter number 1. Well, I feel like I could go home right now and feel like I've been to church. Amen. I knew you'd say amen to that. I didn't say we're gonna go home. I just said we probably could. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter number 1, and uh, I'm going to try to do something that uh, is maybe a little ambitious today. I'm going to try to preach two messages to you, and I think you'll see why that is as we get into the, uh, the message this morning. 2 Samuel chapter number 1, let me say before we read what a blessing it is to have you in the house of God today. Uh, thankful for our visitors being here. You enrich our services, and uh, I trust the Lord will bless you. All right, 2 Samuel chapter number 1, verse number 1, the Word of God says, now it came to pass... After the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle. and Many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me. And I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me. For anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger an Amalekite. David said unto him, How was thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand, to destroy the Lord's anointed. David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house today. I pray that, Lord, you would work in the hearts of the people here gathered. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person save my own and I guess if I was to be real honest, Lord, only, only you know, really, my heart's condition. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts and lives, our circumstances, Lord, our relationship with you. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, I pray that you'd show them their need of salvation. Pray they would cast away, Lord, all the false hopes that they have in religion or good works or whatever they may be trusting in and lean only and wholly upon the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they'd be eternally saved. And Lord, I pray for those of us in this room... Uh, whose hearts may be distant from you, who whose hearts may be distracted away from you or drawn away from close fellowship, that the preaching of the Word of God would draw us back close to you this morning. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want, if I can, this morning to tell you the story of two men. One of them we have read about this morning, and if the Lord and time permits, we'll read about the other one before we're done. But I want us to consider these two men. I want us to consider their differences. I want us to consider their similarities. Both of these men found themselves standing in the presence of the king. Both of these men found themselves standing at the feet of David. Both of these men were dealt with in different ways. There were some similarities and there were some disparities between these two men. The first we've read about was an Amalekite. And the other, if the Lord will allow us to, is an Egyptian. We'll read about him later. One of them, the one we just read about, was a son. And the other was a servant. One was found in deception. The other was found dying. These are some of the differences that they had. uh, But they also had some key similarities. Uh, For instance, both of these men were enemies of Israel by their birth. He say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Egyptians and the Amalekites were both historical oppressors of Israel, and they were Gentile strangers concerning the God of Israel. And you say, why does that matter, preacher? Well, uh, if you're part of uh, the enemy's crowd, you don't want to be standing in front of the king. You'd expect the king to take your head off. You'd expect the king to strike you down. But both of these men, being enemies of the king, still found themselves in the presence face to face with the king. Can I I tell you something somebody may leave this life an enemy of God but they've not escaped God one of these days they're going to stand face to face with God one of these days they'll stand in the presence of the king so both of these men were enemies of Israel by birth and then let me say this both of these men were enemies of Israel in battle now you may disagree with what I'm about to say and that's fine when you preach this message you preach it any way that you want But if I'm reading my Bible carefully, I find that there were two battles that took place or two military excursions that took place at the same time. Uh, David has been living in exile in a Philistine city named Ziklag. And at the same time, the Philistines have marched against the Israelites. So, Brother Charlie, it looks to me, if I read my Bible carefully, that at one battlefield, the Philistines are set in array against the Israelites. And at the same time, the Amalekites, knowing the Philistines are distracted with battle, Brother Kent, they fall on the city of Ziklag, where David has been living. David is away at the battle, but they fall on the city and burn that city with fire and take captive everyone that was in the city. In fact, that famous passage where we're told that David encouraged himself in the Lord takes place because of this. When he returns back home, he finds that the city he's been living in has been burned, and his wives and his children and all of his goods, everything's been taken, and the people spake of stoning David. And in that moment, God breaks the wayward king's heart, brings him back into fellowship with him. But it seems like both of these battles take place at the same time. I think I can show you from Scripture that there is a good... Reason to believe that both of these men, one the son of an Amalekite, the other the servant of an Amalekite, who says himself that he was at the burning of Ziklag, that both of these men likely had been at the battle or at the burning of Ziklag. Now you say, Preacher, why does that make a difference? Well, it's one thing to stand in front of the king and just by virtue of your birth be on the wrong side of him. It's another thing to have been the one that burned down his house. In other words, we could say this. Not only did he transgress the king by his nature, but they both had transgressed the king by their actions. They had both assaulted what belonged to the king. They were both enemies of Israel in battle. But you know, in spite of their similarities, these two men were dealt with very differently by David the one we read about just a moment ago, is cut down because of the things that he said and the things that he did. But this other man, this servant of the Amalekite, the Egyptian man back in 1 Samuel 30, he's not dealt with in that way. He's dealt with in kindness and in mercy. He is restored, he is revived, and he is accepted into the king's household. Here's the question I've got for you this morning. What was the difference between these two men? Why was it one of them was received, one of them was rejected? Why was it that one of them was restored and the other was destroyed? And I've got a little bit of an idea this morning. Brother Charlie, I don't think it was that they were enemies of Israel by birth. That would have been enough for David to kill them. And I don't think it was just that they were enemies of Israel in battle. Brother Ken, that would have certainly been enough. But I think the difference was in how they approached the king. Can I tell you something this morning? One of these days, every one of us, we're going to approach the king. And it don't matter where you born. It don't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your tax bracket or the color of your skin or what your raising was. Every one of us is going to stand before the king. And we won't be judged by any of those things. We'll be judged by how we approach unto him. I would say it this way, just to lay it all on the table. I find one man that tried to gain the king's favor by merit and he failed. Then back in chapter 30 of the previous book, I find this other fellow that gained the king's favor by mercy. Can I tell you something? You can't gain his favor by merit. If you're going to get it, you're going to have to get it by mercy. It's by faith. It's by grace. It's not by good works that we have done. It's not by baptism. It's not by church membership. I'm just going to be honest with you. Being a member of Walridge might be a strike against you. I'm not sure. It's not any of those things, but rather it's this. Are you trusting in His blood? Are you by faith approaching unto Him? So when I consider these two men, I want us to notice some things about the way they approach, because I think they're very instructive. One man comes to David, and his whole premise is, David, I have done something for you, and because I have done something for you, you should forgive my past, forgive what I have done, pardon me of those things, and bring me into fellowship and into the family of God. Whenever he approaches unto David, he comes with news of the battle. He says that Israel has fallen, and David asks, the question that was burning in his soul what about Saul? What about Jonathan? Saul had been a threat to him. Jonathan had been a friend to him. But David had loved both of them and David had sought to see both of them confirmed and and established upon the throne. And so he says, what about Saul and what about Jonathan? And all the fellow has a tale to tell. He says, well, you know, it's a funny thing, King. As I was walking by Mount Gilboa, I looked over and there is Saul. And he was fatigued. He was worn out. He was leaning on his spear. The language doesn't suggest he was trying to kill himself by what that man says, but rather just that he was winded. He was not, he was not trying to kill himself on his spear. He was resting on the spear is what this man says. And the, the Philistines were pressing hard on him in chariots. And Saul, king, he, he, he hollered out to him and he said, Who are you? The man says, I answered back, I'm an Amalekite. The king looked at me and said, hey, listen, why don't you come over and kill me? Because my life is whole in me and I'm left in anguish. In other words, the idea was that Saul was saying, I'm too ashamed to die at the hand of my enemy. Come and kill me instead. The fellow says, I didn't want to do it, king, but he begged me to. And so I went over and he said, I looked at him and I could see that he couldn't survive. You know, the truth has a ring to it. Isn't it funny how Saul, in this man's retelling of the story, Saul said, I'm in anguish because my life is whole in me. But then this fellow turns around and says, I killed him because I could tell that he wouldn't live after his fall, Brother Ken. The truth has a ring to it. This didn't ring of the truth, did it? Instead, he says, I came, and I fell upon him, and I slew him, and now I've come as a dutiful servant. I'm just doing my job. I'm just bringing this crown and this bracelet unto you, and I'm just reporting unto you what I have seen, what I have done, and where I have been. David looks at him, and this man no doubt was expecting David to be elated, but instead David looks at him and says, who did you say you are again? It's never a good thing when somebody looks at you and says, uh, who did you say you are again? And the fellow says, well, I'm an Amalekite. And David said, how was it, how was it that thou fought to slay God's anointed?" He looks over at one of the fellows beside him and says, kill this man. His own words have condemned him. This man tried to approach the king with a tall tale of his own good works, and it got him killed. What was the problem with this man's story? Well, I see three things. Number one, let me say that the first problem is it was based on a foolish deception. Let's read a little bit of Scripture. Look back in 1 Samuel 31. You probably only have to turn a page to get there. 1 Samuel chapter 31. And the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, tells us exactly how Saul died. And the story that the Holy Ghost tells and the story that this man told did not line up. Can I tell you something? If in your life the story that the Holy Ghost tells and the story that you tell don't line up, I believe I'd change over and I would just sign on to whatever the Holy Ghost says about me. I believe I'd agree with God about what the Word of God says about me. And so we don't have to wonder who was right. We know who was right. The Holy Spirit in chapter 31 is correct. And listen to how it really happened. The Bible says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malchai, Shua, Saul's sons. Now up to this point, it's pretty much G.N. And but look at the next phrase. The Bible, the Bible says that the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Uh, the first, the Amalekite man says nothing about this wound of Saul. Instead, says that he is whole. But the Bible says that he was wounded. Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, "Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me." But the armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell upon it. In other words, Saul was not saying, I'm giving up the fight. He was saying, I'm getting ready to die. And rather than die by being abused by these men, I'd rather die with honor and fall upon my sword. But he was not whole and healthy. He was not just in cowardice, running away from the fight. He was wounded grievously. The Bible tells us that when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. Nick, turn me down just a little bit if you don't mind. In other words, the Bible tells us that this Amalekite wasn't nowhere around. The Amalekite couldn't have seen that. You know how I know that? Because the armor bearer was the last man to see Saul alive. So in other words, we know this man has made up this tale out of whole cloth. The Bible says in verse 7, "...when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, they that were on the other side of Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them." Notice verse 8, we'll mention it in a moment. It says, "...it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa." And you say, Preacher, why do we read all that? For this plain, simple reason. I want you to understand that when this fellow comes to David and says, "...here, David, are my good works that I have done for you here's the first problem is that he was lying when he was claiming he had done good works for the king you say what do you mean preacher well i'm saying this you know the problem with the idea that you're going to work your way to heaven you know the idea you know the problem that you have enough good works to get to heaven without the grace of god and faith in jesus christ you know the main problem with it it's not true it's just not true The fact of the matter is, we are all, according to the Scriptures, we are all unrighteous. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. There's none that doeth justly. The fact is, the man that looks at God and says, God, I'm going to approach unto you in my good works, the main problem with it is he doesn't have any good works. Even the moral things that he does are motivated by selfish reasons. This man said, I'm bringing my good works to you. But the problem was he hadn't done any of those things. I, when, I, when I dig through his story, I noticed some inconsistencies here. Number one, I noticed he lied about where he had been. Now, here's where the evidence may be a little circumstantial, but I, I trust you'll grant me a little bit of, of mercy and favor here. Look what he says uh, down, let's see, in uh, verse number, I believe it's verse number 3. I'll get it here in just a second. He said this, the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. In other words, here's what he tries to sell to David. I just happened to be walking by, David. And I looked over and saw this battle taking place. I don't know about you, I've not spent a lot of time in ancient warfare, but I would imagine, Brother Ken, a battle's a pretty noisy place. I would imagine a full-blown battle's not the kind of thing that'd sneak up on a man. For him to say he happened by chance in Mount Gilboa and just happened in this battlefield strains the idea of belief beyond capability. Can I offer to you what I think is a more likely thing? It's more likely, the Bible tells us, that whenever David caught up with the fellas that had burned Ziklag, that some of them had already fled, but they caught up with the rest of them, and there were 400 young men that fled on the back of camels. I think it is likely that this fella was chased down by David's armies and had fled that scene of the battle. Probably wandering in the wilderness, he noticed that there were some Philistines going down to the field of battle, and the Bible says in verse 8, they were going down to strip the slain. We know that he wound up with Saul's crown. We know he wound up with Saul's bracelet. That tells us he was at the scene of the battle. Uh, But it is highly unlikely that he just stumbled upon it. I'd say what's more likely is he came like a vulture down uh, to strip the bodies of what was there because he had been bankrupted and bereft because he'd been chased away from the scene of battle. Now, you don't have to believe that. We'll get to heaven and we'll settle every bit of it and we can fist fight about it now if you want. But I'm just telling you, in my opinion, I think it's likely This young man was lying about where he'd been. It is almost impossible to believe he just stumbled upon it. You know the problem with a man claiming he's going to get to heaven by his own good works? To do that, he's got to lie about where he's been. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm saying this. If you commit to God that you're going to do good works from this moment forward, what are you going to do about your past? you still have a sinful past. Now, I'm not granting you could live from now till glory and not sin. I don't think you could live from now till 12 o'clock and not sin. But I'm just telling you, even if you could do such a thing, what are you going to do about your past? Think fundamentally about what he's saying here. It's likely this man had been involved in the burning of Ziklag and having fled a defeat and heard of the defeat of the Israelites by the Philistines and come to the battlefield to scavenge. However, he makes no mention of the attack on Ziklag. Instead, he claims that he happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa. Listen to what he's saying. He was saying he was not there as an opportunistic enemy of Israel. Instead, he claimed that he just happened to find himself in that place. In other words, he was saying that circumstances had brought him here, Brother Charlie, and not sin. You know why he was by Mount Gilboa? Because he had been an enemy of Israel engaged in the assault on God's people. And you know why he wound It wasn't just he happened to be there. He was there because he had been engaged as an enemy of God. Can i tell you something, the lost person doesn't find themselves in the condition they're in just by happenstance. Now somebody's going to say, you don't understand, preacher, I was a victim of my bad circumstances. I grew up in a drunkard's home. I grew up in an attic home. I was abused when I was younger. I went through this. I went through that. I went through this. And can I say this? I'm not saying bad things haven't happened to you. Uh, but the bad things that have happened to you are not the reason that you're a lost sinner. You were a lost sinner before any of those bad things happened to you. Uh, and the thing that will fix you is not to somehow secure and protect you from all abuse for the rest of your life. The only thing that can change and transform your life is the mercy and grace of God. In other words, you're not a sinner by, by happenstance. You're a sinner because that's your nature. Just as I'm a sinner because that's my nature. It's who and what we are. You see, for a man to try to get to heaven through good works, he's got to pretend as though he was born good and he's maintaining that goodness. But that's completely contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible says we are shaping in iniquity. We are born lost and we must be found. We are born dead, and we must have life breathed into us. We are born wrong, so we must be born again the right way. We must be birthed into the family of God. So he lied about where he had been. Not only that, I noticed he lied about what he had seen. Now, notice this. He claimed to see the king fatigued. In his telling of the story, Brother Taylor, he says that when he found Saul, Saul was just worn plumb out and was resting on his spear and that he had given up because he was tired that's not what my bible tells me back in first samuel chapter number 31 instead the bible does not tell me that the king was weary the bible instead tells me that the king was wounded listen carefully saul had indeed been defeated that day however it was not due to weakness or weariness it was because he was wounded i'm going to say that again the king had been defeated that day but it wasn't because he was weary and it wasn't because he was weak it was because He was wounded. The unrepentant sinner trusting their good works disregards the wounded Savior. Is too weak and unable by Himself to secure their salvation. Listen now, the cross was not a place of weakness but a place of divine strength, and strength. He didn't go to the cross of Calvary because He just got overrun by wicked men. He went there deliberately. In other words, this man says, I saw the King and He was weak and tired. But I'd say to you, no, He was wounded for our transgressions. And To try to get to heaven through your good works is to disregard the reason He went to the cross. It's to disregard what the cross was all about. Hey, listen, if you could get there on your own, why did He come and die for you? And it's to look at him as weak and unable to secure our salvation. To say God needs uh, the blood of Jesus plus my good works it suggests that the blood of Jesus is not enough. Yeah. That he's too weak. So he claimed he had seen the king fatigue. Number two, he claimed he had seen the king forfeit. He said Saul just gave up. But Saul hadn't given up. He claimed the king was unwilling to fight to the end to win the battle. But that was not true. He claimed that the king did not care about the people that he led. But that was not true. In fact, Saul had been mortally wounded by archers. And only when death was certain did he fall on his sword. He died fighting for the salvation and deliverance of his people. The unrepentant sinner trusting their good works disregards the very reason Christ died on the cross and what he accomplished. Listen, Christ went to the cross for them. Christ didn't die on the cross as a martyr. He died as a victor. The Bible says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. In other words, the cross was not a failure. The cross was an expression of faithfulness. It wasn't that He went to the cross because He couldn't help it. It's that He went to the cross because He loved you and because He loved me. Uh, The cross didn't arrive in Jesus' life by happenstance or bad luck or poor misfortune. The Bible says He set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. The Bible says when He spoke of His death, for this hour came I into the world. He didn't die on the cross as a coward. He didn't die on the cross in weakness. He died as a victor. Christ dying on the cross, listen now, is proof that man can't achieve righteousness through good works and that he needs a Savior. When a person tries to Come to God and say, I don't want to trust you. I don't want to repent of my sin. I don't want to admit that I'm a sinner and need to be saved. I instead just want to get baptized or I want to do good works or I want to commit to turn over a new leaf. What they are suggesting is that the cross was meaningless. If turning over a new leaf would get us to heaven, why did He go to the cross? If getting baptized would get us to heaven, why did He go to the cross? Why didn't He just say, everybody get baptized and you'll be alright? He went to the cross because the cross was the only way. He died for our sins because it was the only way. And to try to get to heaven through your good works is to suggest that when He died, He died in forfeit and not in fighting and in faithfulness. He did that because the Lord sinned. You know, Paul said it best in Galatians 2.21. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. To try to claim we can get to heaven on our own good works is to frustrate the grace of God. It's to suggest the grace of God is not enough. I believe it's enough today. So he lied about what he had seen. And then I see this. He lied about what he had done. He said that he had came to Saul and that Saul had requested, stand on me and slay me. And here's what he was saying. Listen, he claimed to have helped Saul accomplish his desire. He said, all I'm trying to do is what Saul wants done. You know, the problem is people will say very often, well, preacher, can I not be good without God? The atheist will say that all the time. Can I not be good without God? It depends on what your definition of good is. If your definition of good is merely moral rule following, then yes, I suppose you can be good. But there was a man that came to Jesus one time, and by all outward appearances, it would seem as though he had been a moral man, that he had kept every commandment, every law. He said all, when they talked about the law, he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. He came to Jesus, and he said this to him. He said, good master, and Jesus stopped him. And he said, why callest thou me good? There's none good but God. Here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, you've got a wrong definition of what good is. You think good to be imitative, when in fact good is reality. He said, you think that good is to act in a certain way. But that's not what good is. Good is to be a certain way. There's a difference. To try to get to heaven through your good works is to act a certain way. To trust in Jesus Christ to save you and create in you a new creature to transform your life is for Him to make you a new person to be a way. A person can be moral, I suppose, without God. He can look at what society calls moral and do those moral things. But he cannot change. He cannot transform his broken sin nature. He cannot regenerate himself. He cannot put in himself the compulsion to do right. Let's roll off. You say it this way. He'll change your want to. Only God can change your want to. You can do, you you can try to run a parallel Christian life. That's what a lot of folks are doing, Brother Charlie, and they're on their way to hell doing it. They're trying to run a parallel Christian life. Trying to look at what Christianity looks like and say, I'll live my life that way, and that'll get me to heaven. But you've missed things, man. Uh, Listen, you've missed where the whole thing starts. Uh, If you hadn't started at the same place, you ain't running the same race. And I'm telling you this, if you didn't start by repenting of your sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then whatever good works that you may do, you may say, I'm just doing what the King desires. But that's not what the King desires. You know what Jesus said was uh, was the commandment that was given to Him that you should believe on His name. A person that tries to get there without believing on His name, they may have done a lot of good commandments, but they left the big one out. They've not believed on His name. He claimed to have helped Saul accomplish his desire. You see, the unrepentant sinner trusting their good works claims that they're simply helping or fulfilling God's desires. In other words, that they can be good without God. The only truth he told about what he had done was that he had stolen the crown from Saul's head. I'm going to say that again. Think about this. There's something, I don't believe in Freudian, but the psychologist would call it Freudian. There's something going on here psychologically. He's telling this lie, Brother Ken, but there's only one thing he tells that's the truth. The only part of it that he admits to that's true is that he stole the crown from off the king's head. Could it be that somewhere in his heart of hearts he understood what he was really trying to do here? Even if he didn't, can I just make a suggestion to you? You know what the lost person is trying to get to heaven just through self-reformation, good works, pledges, commitments to God? You know what they're really trying to do? They're really trying to take the crown off God's head. Put it on their head. They're trying to say, I don't have to subject myself to your authority. I can do this through my own strength. I can get there my own way. I'll just do good works. I'll do what I believe is righteous. And I don't have to bow the knee before you. I'll take that crown off your head and I'll put it on my head. So he lied about what he had seen and where he had been and what he had done. So the first problem I see with this is that it was based in a false deception. Number two, or a foolish deception. You know what I think was part of the problem here, Brother Fred? is that when he comes to David, he's got some things wrong. And I don't just mean the story uh, that he told. Uh, You know, you ever heard somebody say this, read the room? What they're saying is, try to be perceptive of your audience. You know, the problem with what this fellow is, he didn't read the room right. He came to the king thinking the king would want some things, and he got it wrong. In other words, I'd say this, that the problem with him, his tale was that it was based in a foolish deception, but number two, it was rooted in a false perception. He got some things wrong about David. Because he got some things wrong about David, he got everything wrong. For instance, I think this man assumed, I think he believed, I think he thought that his news would be met with rejoicing. Here's how this man thought it would go. Can we just workshop it? You can imagine as he is running and carrying this to the king and he's got the crown and the bracelet carefully folded and stowed away and he's running and you can imagine in his mind how it's all going to go he's going to run up to the king and he's going to fall at his feet and the king's going to say who are you and he said I'm going to say I'm the son of an Amalekite and David's going to say well what news do you have and he's going to say Saul and Jonathan are, are dead and, he, and no doubt he thought the king would say whoopee no doubt he thought the king would be ecstatic after all Saul had tried to kill David for years Jonathan, though he was a friend of Saul's, would have certain or though he was a friend of David's, as the son of Saul, he would have been a contender to David's throne. This Amalekite, he thought there would be rejoicing. In other words, he thought what he was doing would please the king. The trouble is, that's not what the king wanted. Can I tell you the problem with trying to get there through good works? We think we're going to please God, but it's not good works that God is looking for. Hey, listen, the Bible says, but without faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Let, 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 let's just ingrain that on our mind. Let's just, let's just stamp it on our eyelids so every time we close our eyes we see it. Without faith, it is impossible. Not it is unlikely. It is impossible to please Him. For the he that cometh to God must believe that He is. That He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This man came to David thinking he's going to be thrilled. He's going to make me prince or something. He's going to promote me. I'm going to have the nicest horse of everybody. He came to him and he thought that it would be met with rejoicing, but it was wrong. Can I tell you this? Aside from the blood of Jesus Christ, God is not pleased with your good works. He's not pleased with my good works. And let me say even this, even being a born-again Christian, if the things I do for God I do in the energy of my own flesh or under the under the jurisdiction of my own authority, God's not pleased with that either. In other words, if I'm just doing what I'm doing, not because he's instructed me, not because I'm trying to please him, but just because I think that's how things should go, that's just as wicked, it's just as meaningless as what this man did. He thought he would be met with rejoicing, but sadly, he was wrong about that. Number two, he thought he would be met with regard. He thought that David would look at him and say, boy, you mean to tell me that you went and you killed Saul, and you took this crown, and you took this bracelet, and you brought it all the way here? I heard said about someone the other day that they sought to make an impression. And the only impression they made was the impression that they were trying to make an impression. This man was trying to make an impression. He thought that David would be impressed with what he did. He thought David would be blown away by the faithfulness and loyalty. Can I remind you that Saul still had sons living? There's a number of people that this man could have ran to. But he ran to David. No doubt as he was approaching David, he thought, David's going to be blown away by what I've done for him. I mean, I took his his enemy, his main contender for the throne. I, 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 I took the king off of the throne and, and now I'm delivering him the crown. He's going to be impressed by my bravery. He's going to be impressed by my loyalty. I could have gone to anybody, but I came here. But you know what I find? David was not impressed at all. In fact, you know what David's reply is? How was it that thou fought to, to touch, to lay thy hand against God's anointed? God said, I'm not I'm not amazed, I'm offended. I'm not amazed, I'm offended. David said, I'm not impressed by what you did. I'm outraged by what you did. I, listen, this is hard truth, but I want you to hear me now. The things we do in the energy of our own flesh and the things that the unrepentant sinner does, trusting in their good works, that they think are going to impress God, do nothing but outrage God. It is, It is, and I'll say more about it in a minute, but it's to look at God and say, I don't want your grace, I don't want your love, I don't want your mercy, I don't want your spirit, I don't want your word. Instead, what I've got is good enough on its own. We think because we're impressed with it, God will be impressed with it. Can I tell you something I've learned after ten years of preaching sermons three times a week? What impresses you don't always impress anybody else. It may impress you. It doesn't impress God. You may look at, and you know, why? Because the frame of reference. Whenever He looks at David, He says, "I could have took this to any king, but I brought it to you." He's looking around him, but David's David's looking above him, and says, "You put your hand against God's anointed." Can I tell you why there's a there's a a, a discrepancy between what we believe is impressive and what God thinks is impressive? We're looking around at everybody else, and He's looking at His anointed. We're looking around and saying, I'm better than the guy next to me. I'm better than the lady next to me. I'm better than my next door neighbors. I'm better than the person down the street. I'm better than that church down the road. And God looks at it and says, I'm not judging you by any of those things. I'm judging you by my anointed. I'm judging you by my perfect darling son. I'm judging you by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you may be impressed by what you're doing, but when I look at it and compare it to the righteousness of Christ, it doesn't impress me. He thought he'd be met with regard. And then I think number three, he thought he'd be met with reward. He thought David would say, "Well, all right, partner, saddle up. You're one of us now. Welcome in. Go get you a big old beef steak, pan of beans and, and pick you out a place and, 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 and we'll get you a blanket, and here you are. You're, you're running with the bunch now. But instead, David says, "Because of how you've approached me, you can't be in my company." David, David on multiple occasions could have killed Saul, but he didn't. How could he then turn and look at his men and say, now we're going to welcome this fella that killed Saul? Are you listening? I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. Maybe it's in my head and heart. I would not touch God's anointed. And you think because you touched God's anointed, I'm going to let you in here? In other words, he's saying this, I would not transgress on Saul's righteousness. And Saul was not a very righteous man. But there is an anointed of God that is righteous. He's the true anointed of God. That's what the word Messiah means. It means anointed of God. And God says this, listen, if if the only way to get you to heaven was I had to turn my hand against mine anointed, why would I turn around and let you in on your paltry self-righteousness? I'm saying he couldn't be a part of the company because of what he did. There was a greater chance, we'll see it in a moment, that he could have been a part of this company if he had never told this tale than having told it. Can I tell you this? Uh, you say, preacher, God can't save me. I'm not good enough. Uh, it ain't about being good. In fact, you've heard me say this before, uh, that heaven is really only filled with bad people and hell is only filled with good people. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I mean that heaven is filled with people that were willing to acknowledge that they were rotten, worthless, broken sinners, Deserving of the grace of God. Unable to save themselves. Willing to tell God just exactly how rotten and filthy that they were. And you know who's in hell this morning? The people that said, I don't need God. I'm good enough on my own. Man, I've been baptized. I've been confirmed. I've been this. I've been that. I'm I'm okay. I'm alright. I'm a pretty good person. You'd walk through the tormented halls of hell and find only pretty good people. The fact that He... Instead of just saying, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a messed up broken Amalekite, and three days ago I was setting fire to your city and I was, I was assaulting the things that belong to you and I don't deserve your mercy and I don't deserve your grace but I got nowhere else to turn and I'm falling at your feet David and please have mercy upon me. The king would have said, come on in son, sit at my table. He did that for Saul's son after all. He would have said, come on in, sit at my table, get your a big plate. You're one of my sons now. But because he comes and says, look what I've done for you. David says, I can have no fellowship with you. (laughs) He thought he would be rewarded. So when I read this passage, I I notice some problems. It was was rooted in a false perception. Then I noticed the final problem. It was met with a fatal reception. David turns looks at one of his men. He asks the man to confirm who he is and what he's done, the Amalekite. Once the man admits, confirms, he turns looks at one of his men and says, now kill him. Whenever he tried to approach the king this way, Whenever he tried to approach the king this way, it was met with immediate death. Notice something here. Notice first off the suddenness of his death. He wasn't tried. He wasn't sat in front of a jury. He was immediately condemned and killed. Now, why was that? Listen to what David says, verse number 16. David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth Hath testified against thee, saying, "I have slain the Lord's anointed." You know why? He was guilty by his own confession. He didn't wait to condemn, be condemned. You listen. He didn't wait to be condemned. He was condemned already. He didn't wait to be condemned. I'll tell you how the funny papers view Judgment Day. They view it as a bunch of cartoon people standing at pearly gates as Saint Peter stands there with big old scales piling our good works against our bad works. Uh, there ain't a shred of that anywhere in your Bible. Not, e- not even an ounce. Not even an inkling. If you're reading through your Bible and thought it was there, you're wrong. It's not there. Instead, you know what the Bible says? John chapter 3. Man, we love that, don't we? John 3. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But you know, it goes on to say, Brother Charlie... Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, that the world might be saved. He said He came not to condemn the world because the world's condemned already. The Bible tells us the wrath of God abides on us already. We ain't waiting to get to heaven to figure out whether we made it in. God's already passed sentence. We're guilty by our own mouth, by our own confession, by our own admission. This man didn't have to be tried. He came to David and said, I killed God's anointed. David said, that's good enough for me. Let's kill you. That's enough. That's all it takes. I see the suddenness of his death. Can I say the the, the person thinking they're And and I th- I don't know. I I don't know. I I I've, can I be honest. I've never been this person. I was a young person when I got saved, and I, I don't guess I ever spent any time trying to get to heaven thinking I was a good person. But but I can only imagine that the lost person that's trusting their good works, they see it as a progressive endeavor. They see it as though they're piling up like they're building a four hundred one k. That's not how it is, friend. You're condemned already. You're not waiting to find out. The Bible's already passed a sentence of death upon you. And that's what I noticed. I noticed not only the suddenness of his death, I noticed the sentence of his death. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'd say it this way. Number one, Brother Ken, you know what I noticed? He died for what he did not do. He didn't kill Saul. but He claimed he did. He died... For what he did not do. You know what that reminds me? Reminds me of a basic theological truth. You know what the Bible says uh, that God requires of a lost sinner? You know what the Bible says that, that we are condemned? Because we have not believed on the name of God's only begotten Son. You know why a sinner goes to hell when they die? It's not because of the sins they've committed. It's not, it's not because they've done horrible things. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of people in heaven that lived lives doing horrible things. But they were willing to confess that they were a sinner and in true faith repent of that sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just let you know, I don't know, this might make you nervous, but ain't nobody in this room really ought to be here. If you knew what I knew about the people in this room, you wouldn't sit across a pew from them. And if I knew what they know about themselves and ain't got nerve enough to tell me, I wouldn't want to stand up here and preach to And if you knew what God knows about me, you sure enough wouldn't sit down there and listen to me. In other words, we've all done horrible things, unspeakable things. That's not why a man goes to hell when he dies. You know why he goes to hell when he dies? Because in spite of all that unrighteousness, he, believing he's good enough to get to heaven, rejects the Son of God, he tries to make it there through his own means. In other words, a man doesn't die and go to hell for what he does. He dies and goes to hell for what he doesn't do. This man died because of what he did not do. But then I would say this, number two, he died because of what he claimed to do. So, What do you mean? Well, he, he died because what he claimed to do was an assault on God's anointed. In other words, we could say it this way, Christ is the true anointed of God. David says clearly, the reason I'm killing you is because you killed Saul. And not because you killed Saul necessarily, but because Saul was God's anointed. And Saul, for all of his brokenness and for all of his flaws and failures, David was, was too fearful to ever take that upon himself. And he says, how dare you now do this? But can I say this, that Saul had lots of flaws, lots of failures, lots of sin, lots of unrighteousness. Scholars have debated for thousands of years, whether he's even really justified by faith, whether he even really knew God. Now, I believe he knew God. You may not believe that, but irregardless, I would say this, that the anointed that the lost man, the unrepentant sinner trying to work their way to heaven, the anointed that they put their hand against is a far greater anointed of God. He's not just some earthly human temporal king that God has set upon a throne. He's the very King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the God of glory. He's God in the flesh. To depend on our works for salvation is to say three things. Number one, that Christ is insufficient. That He's not enough. You understand that when a man gets born again, what God does is He takes all of his unrighteousness and He lets the death of Christ stand for that man's punishment. He takes all that unrighteousness and we can say figuratively that he, when Christ died on the cross, He took all that unrighteousness and put it on Jesus. And the way that exchange happens is then God takes the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and He takes it and puts it on the sinner so that when He looks at Jesus on the cross, He sees a dying sinner and paying for our sins. And when He looks at you and I, He sees us like we're the perfect Son of God. The Bible says to declare at this time I say His righteousness for the forbearance of sins that are past, that He might be both just and the justifier of Him that believe on Him. In other words, that exchange takes place. Now, when a man says, "Well, yeah, you know, I, 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 it's good to be a believer, it's good to be a Christian, it's good to own a Bible and all that," but 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 I don't listen. I don't need to repent of my sins. I don't need to trust in the Lord. I, I, I just I'm just going to do good works. What they're saying is this: the righteousness of God is not enough to get me there. He needs my good works instead. That's why it was such an assault. When a, when a, when a person trusts their good works, that's why it's such an offense to God. You're looking at God and saying it's not. Can I give you a for instance? That'd be alright this morning? I've done give up on sermon number two. You're gonna have to come back tonight for that. Don't get nervous. Can can I, can I give you a for instance? It's good manners to not salt a plate before you taste it. Now, when I get a plate, it don't matter who fixed it for me. First thing I reach for is salt and pepper. So I ain't standing on pretense when i got good food in front of me. But I'm just telling you, in civilized company, they typically tell you it's not good to salt a dish before you taste it. You know why? Because you're making an assumption and you're making an implication about the chef. What you're saying is this. I've not tasted yet to see if it's good, but I'm going to assume that it's not and add in a little of what I think it needs. You know what the lost man trying to get to heaven through his own good works is doing? He's not tasted to see that the Lord is good. That's what the Hebrews writer said. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good, that He's gracious. He's not tasted to see that the Lord's good. He's just assumed God needs His good works. He's never took a bite of the dish, but he said, I'm going to sprinkle in a little something of my own, because I just assume what He has isn't enough. Can I tell you what He has? It's enough. Put the salt away, friend. Put the pepper away. Hey, listen, even set down the hot sauce. You don't need it. What He has is enough this morning. It's good enough on its own. It's to say that Christ is insufficient. It's to say the cross was unnecessary. It's to say the cross was the most monumental redundancy in human history. That we don't need His righteousness, but He died anyway. It's to suggest that we know more about what we need than God knows. That's the reason the preaching of the cross is an offense to them that perish. It's because it reminds them, it suggests to them, it it, it it proves to them that they are lost and can't get to heaven on their own. Don't you imagine if God could get us to heaven any other way, He would have done it and not sent His Son to die. That's the reason that, that Paul says the love, of, the love of Christ constraineth us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The cross reveals some things to us that we are lost, that we are helpless, that we are broken, that we can't get to heaven on our own, and that all the good works that we perform before God are of no merit or interest to Him. It's to suggest that the cross is insufficient, or that Christ is insufficient, that the cross is unnecessary. And listen, it's to suggest that grace is unwanted. It's to look at God. You've heard the term, look a gift horse in the mouth. It's to look at God and say, no, thank you. I can do it on my own. No, thank you. I can get baptized. The baptism of my preacher or my church is good enough. No, thank you. I'm good enough. My granddaddy was a preacher. I'm alright. I don't need the grace of God. Listen, I've, I've gone to church my whole life. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's to suggest that any of those things is what you want as opposed to the grace of God. It's to look at God and say, no thank you. When what we really ought to be saying is, Lord, thank you. Thank you for looking down at me. Though I am, though I am but dust, you are mindful of me. Can I say you and I, we need the grace of God. I'm talking about saved people and lost people need the grace of God to try to get there through your own good works. And you know, you know the real, the real tragedy of this whole thing? I'm just going to say this and be done. I noticed the suddenness of his death and I noticed the sentence of his death. But the saddest thing of this whole passage is the senselessness of his death. I told you and I don't know, we'll do whatever the Lord wants us to do. But if the Lord will help us to tonight, we may jump back to chapter thirty of the previous book and look at this Egyptian man. This Egyptian man is just as messed up. He's just as broken, he's just as guilty. He was just as worthless. In fact, you know, David finds him in, in a field because his master had left him to die because he fell sick. And yet the king welcomes, pardons him and welcomes him in. The great tragedy of this Amalekite's death is it never had to happen. It never had to, if he would have just come to David as he was, are you listening? If he'd just come as he was, if he'd just not tried to lie and tried to uh, let his pride get in the way and stand on pretense and stand on all these things, if he'd just come as he was, that's all God's ever wanted of you and me, is that we'd come to him as we are. He's never said, fix yourself and I'll receive you. He's never said, wash yourself and I'll fellowship with you. He's always said, hey, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He said, come unto me and I'll wash you. Your sins were scarlet They shall be as white as snow He's never said Go fix yourself And then come back and see me He came to us in our brokenness He came to us in our rottenness He came to us in our wretchedness The senseless death of this man Is the greatest tragedy He didn't have to do all that Man, if he had just come to David And said "Uh, You ought to kill me But I'm asking you by your grace not to David would have said Welcome into the family Can I say the great tragedy Of people trying to work their way to heaven is they'll never make it, number one. Number two, they don't have to. They don't have to try. Now, I'm not suggesting when God saves us that He doesn't transform us. I'm saying this notion that we have to somehow impress God. God's not impressed with you. God's not impressed with me. There's nothing we could do that would impress God. It's not about impressing God. We don't have to die in that condition. That's the thing that breaks my heart, man. You look out at a world. there There are people all over the city of Knoxville today that are trusting the words of a priest to get them to heaven, that are trusting sacraments to get them to heaven, that are trusting baptism. They're going and sitting in churches all over the city today where someone's standing up and saying, if you'll just take these rites, if you'll just receive this baptism, if you'll just make this pledge, and they're broken and they're lost and they're trying and they're groping for hope, and they don't have to. Meanwhile, the bleeding Son of God extends His hands of mercy out and says, look at all I did for thee. Just come to me, broken as you are, messed up as you are, dead as you are, and I'll receive you unto myself and I'll breathe life into you and I'll redeem you and I'll forgive you and I'll pardon you of your sins and I'll transform you and I'll indwell you with my spirit and I'll make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Oh, it's so senseless to leave this life. On the broken legs of your good works instead of in the strong arms of the grace of God. Don't leave here in that condition. This man didn't have to die that day. And I say this, he was going to die one day and stand before a greater king than David. You and I are going to die one day. We're going to stand before a greater than David. And when that day comes, how will we have approached the king? Through our own merit or through His mercy? Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play and the altar is open. I do not know what God may be doing in hearts this morning, but I do know that He, He asks for obedience. I do know whatever it is God's spoken to your heart about, the very best course of action is for you to yield to Him, for you to obey Him, for you to do what He asks of you. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name with our heads bowed. Around.